Well, hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And every month, we like to take time to answer some of the questions that you have presented us with. Uh, And so today is one of those podcasts where we're going to be spending some time answering and working through these questions that were sent in. So thank you for that. If you have questions that come up, please feel free to send them in at infogrove.church, or you can also DM us on our Facebook page with all the questions your heart's desires. Absolutely. So if you're wondering today why my uh, my voice sounds a little bit so deeper. amazing. Thank you. I honestly do wish my voice sounded like this Is all that the time. my voice? Uh, but I am, uh, I am sick. Whatever Aaron had at our last recording, I think transferred over to me. Because so. you can't see this because it's a podcast, but I cough in his direction it's as true. often as I possibly can. So, so I just want to share with you the love, bro. With that being said, I'm going to do my best to hit the mute whenever I'm, I start coughing and stuff like that. But, you know, just uh, have a little bit of grace uh, for, for us today as we're navigating through. Great. What's that? I know. Um, but our first question, uh, just to kind of dive into everything. So this one, uh, and I thought it was a really interesting one. It says, Mark 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 20 th- 24 through 25 says that, and Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter in the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. But most churches preach that repenting our sins and declaring Christ as Lord and Savior is sufficient. Can you explain the assumed discrepancy? Um, is Mark 27, uh, and then there Jesus says, all things are possible with God, the escape clause uh, to to this statement. Um, every time I think of escape clause, I think of... The Santa Claus? Dude, this is... It's super, this is totally out of left field, um, but it's it's my wife's favorite Christmas movie. It's a rad Christmas it's the movie. Santa Claus if you've not three. seen the Santa Claus with Tim Allen... You need to go see it. Okay? So every year we The first watch. one's great. The second one's good. The third one's pretty good too. So they're, they're just a good little series. Yeah. They, they, yeah. And growing up, he was, Tim Allen was my Santa Claus. Yeah. And in honor true. of the coming snow, apparently this weekend in the Cascades at 4,000 feet, there's supposed to be snow. Uh, Christmas is upon us, everybody, just so you know. Merry Christmas. Popo. Anyways. God bless. Popo. Anyway. Um, so anyway, so aside from all of that, um, in short – Yes, the idea that through God all things are possible is um, the escape clause to that passage. Um, but there's a couple things to keep in mind that I think are important. Um, number one, the broader point that Jesus is making here. Um, why is it diffi- more difficult for wealthy people to get salvation, I guess, if, if that if that's a sense. And so what what Jesus is saying is that it, it is more difficult. And so there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Number one, and I've heard it said this way a lot, um, those who trust in their wealth, um, it's going to be very mm-hmm. difficult for them uh, to enter into the kingdom of God. And, and part of it too, I think is, and, it, and it's also a thing that we see in American culture. Because if we look at ourselves today, um, Except for the most poor among us, all of us today have a standard of living that is better than even the wealthiest people um, at this time in Israel. For the most part, like we have our life expectancies are longer. Um, even the poor among us, very few of us actually have to wonder where um, where our food is coming from. Like, are we going to starve to death? I mean, there's things like that. And again, I don't I don't want to make light of it, but but the the affluence that we have um, just by nature of living in this country. Um, takes away a lot of the need for trust in God. And, mm-hmm. and kind of what I mean by that, I suppose, is 
one of the most loving things that God, that God can do is put you into a situation where you have no choice but to trust in him for the outcome. Um, and when you're wealthy or when you have most of your needs taken care of, those situations do not come up nearly as often. And so again, I, I, Jesus is for sure not saying that wealthy people cannot uh, become Christians. And, I, and there's tons of um, Christians that I know who we would consider wealthy, who are some of the best people I know and have been mm-hmm. huge encouragements in my life. So I, I want to be careful about that. But but he is saying that it is this extra, um, it's this extra temptation, it's this extra snare um, that perhaps those people who don't even have the opportunity to trust um, in their own wealth or their own money don't have. And so we have to learn whatever securities that we have in our lives, we have to remember that those are not the things that keep us secure, but rather it is our relationship with God that keeps us secure. Um, And regardless of whether those extra securities are wealth or it can be a number of different things, it can even be relationships um, that are good relationships, but should not necessarily be ultimate relationships. Um, And Jesus encourages us to, to shed those things away. Yeah. And I think um, we've got to, we've got to think through this, this filter for a minute. First off, how are we defining wealth versus how is wealth perceived uh, in in the original context? Because the truth and the principle still exists. Salvation is is not just a mere act of a verbal confession. Um, salvation is much bigger than um, than just like oh Jesus come into my heart, change my you know, I surrender to you. But there's also this idea of lordship. But I think the other thing too is the trust. Um, I trust if I am hungry, I'm going to, I trust more in my money than God bring me a meal. If I have a need, I trust more in my ability to, uh, accomplish that need than relying on God to bring provision for that need. And so I think, um, I mean, even as Jesus is saying, you know, looking back and just like, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Period. I, I think that there's, it is not easy to enter God's kingdom. I mean, Pastor Nick brought this up in, in one of our messages recently in John chapter 14. He re- referred to it because we just got done reading it again recently. But it's the idea of like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. And when we don't have a need for a savior, when we don't recognize, let me clarify that, when we don't recognize our need for a savior, it's when we get caught in this, well, do I really need Christ? I'm doing pretty good without him. We view him and we view our, our life and our vitality in, in finite terms. Jesus is talking about infinite terms. He's talking about eternity. Um, and so I think it's important to remember uh, and realize like it's when we don't have a, pre- a presupposed need for, for someone to save us or redeem or work, we tend to trust ourselves because we're human. So I think that there's some tension that we got to be careful about. Right. And the last thing I would say to keep in mind too is that um, salvation without God is impossible for everyone, not just the wealthy. And so um, when God says that, or when Jesus is saying that it is easier, you know, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved, it could also be said it it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle um, than for anyone to be saved without the finished work of Christ. And so um, I think sometimes we can read that as it's easy for everyone else to be saved except for rich people. Like, well, no, the, the work of Jesus is what makes salvation possible. But remember the context of that passage too. Remember like when Jesus is talking to his disciples, it's it's out of the context of a situation he's observing happening. And and I should have probably looked at more of the, just the context uh, of the passage itself, but I'm pretty sure there was this encounter with a rich ruler at one of these instances, one of these accounts where he walks away dejected and Jesus' response to those closest to him was like, 
how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Right. Like it's total surrender. So you got to remember at the same time, it's not even just the declaration of the wealthy. It's, it's, it's a practical statement. It's a teaching moment is what it is out of a, an interaction with a rich individual. Sure. Um, okay. So next one is uh, question two. Uh, please, can you spend some time talking about Mark fifteen thirty four, possibly one of the most critical points of the Bible? Um, and if you don't know that off the top of your head, which um, I did not either, so no worries, uh, but it is. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma. Yeah, I should have looked up how to pronounce that. We'll just say sabachthani. Yeah, he says some things in Aramaic, and then uh, which means, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um Okay, so this actually is a this actually is a fairly interesting because it's 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 one verse, um, and really it's one sentence, right? It's my mm-hmm. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but it is it it brings up some interesting questions about what is going on, and so there's a few things I want to talk about um, that I think are interesting and also just good things to keep in mind. Um, so number one, and and I suppose this is the most direct read of of that passage. Um, is Jesus at this moment experiencing separation from the Father and the Spirit in a way that and it, it, it basically Get your shovels out? We're going deep. We're go. We're going deep. Um, dive, dive, dive. And here's the thing. I would say. I would say yes. I think this is a little bit more of an open-handed issue. And, and what I mean by that is, um, like, you could convince me otherwise. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there's something to be said for Jesus in the moment of the crucifixion is taking on the punishment for sin. And and ultimately, when we think about it, the punishment for sin is not crucifixion. And it's also not necessarily death. Um, Again, if we go back to Genesis, um, death is clearly a punishment of sin, that Mm -hmm. because of original sin, um, we all now die. But keep in mind that we all still die. It's not like Jesus... um, Wait, what? Rever- spoilers for how every one of you listening, your life is going to end, which that's a morbid statement. But well, we just lost about a thousand listeners. That's true. Uh, but no, we're all gonna, we're all going to die, Hang right? In New Zealand. Um, but the the interesting reality of it is that Jesus' death and resurrection does not actually reverse the fact that we're all going to die. Um, what it does reverse is the eternal punishment for mm-hmm. sin, and the eternal punishment for sin, um, and this is honestly much scarier than death, is separation from God. Um, and really Total we, separation from God. Right. And we don't know that much about hell, um, and the Bible doesn't go into details about it. And I think that's intentionally because the Bible is not a book. And we'll actually get to this with a later question. It's not a morbid book. Yeah. The Bible is not concerned um, with giving you, I, for lack of a better word, like the lore behind like the dark things mm-hmm. uh, in, spirit, in the spiritual world. It's concerned with telling you those things as they apply to us today, but it's not going to go like into a chapter of here's what hell looks like and here who's all these here's different the things. Here's the bad place. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if the punishment for sin is separation from God, um, then it would make sense that if Jesus is taking on the weight of sin, that at some point he would also experience separation from God. And I, I, it's again, just to keep going deeper, we talked about the Trinity. I think it was the last Q&A episode, actually. We talked yes. about it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but it, the separation of Jesus from the Father and the Holy Spirit is a separation of, of, of a kind that we really can't imagine. And and what I mean by that, and I don't is, know if we'll ever come close. To no, imagining. and it's definitely not on this side of eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can imagine, like if if my wife was um, like suddenly gone one day, 
Um, I mean, that would be incredibly painful and just all of a sudden like to suddenly be removed um, from relationship with her. But that, but that's nothing compared um, to Jesus' separation from the two other persons whom he has had eternal relationship with. And again, this is where we're kind of getting to the deep waters of the Trinity where it's – we're going to say things that just sound like crazy off the wall and and who knows. But again, like – if you didn't listen to the last episode, I guess just to quickly recap, um, as Christians, we believe that there is one God um, mm-hmm. and that that God exists as three eternally co-God persons, if that makes sense. So there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the Bible, we see them sprinkled in. Um, but we don't believe that they are separate gods. So there's we don't believe that there's three gods, but rather we believe there's one God and that they exist in a way or that he exists in a way um, that we as humans just cannot understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically where we landed on. I would encourage you if, if that sounds confusing, you didn't listen to it, listen to the previous, uh, Q and a episode where we dive a little bit deeper into that subject. Um, but yeah, I would say that at this moment, Jesus is experiencing the greatest punishment of sin, which is the removal from God's presence, which is something that Jesus has never experienced. Um, moving on. And this is where I think it, it gets, well, not that that last part was interesting, but here's where it also gets interesting. Um, Remember that when Jesus is being crucified, he's surrounded by a few Roman guards, but the majority of people there are Jews, um, and especially Pharisees. Pharisees are there, and and they have memorized the Bible. They know um, the words of it. They they know the law. They know the prophets. They know the books of wisdom and all these different things. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first thing that would have popped into their heads was not this idea that Jesus was being separated from the presence of God, but was actually Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 starts off with, in in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I do not find rest. And so there's a lot of interesting things that are found in this psalm, but really I I, want to kind of go through, read portions of it, and just kind of ask you like, okay, well, who does this sound like to you? Um, So to kind of move forward in verse seven, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver them. Let him rescue him for the deli- for he delights in him. And you'll remember how, and I, I don't remember if it was the other thief on the cross or if it's people in the crowd, but Jesus is mocked and they're saying, if you are who you say it's you both. are, yeah, be delivered right now. Okay, deliver well, yourself, save yourself and us. Right. So that, and that's what we get in, in verse eight. Um, and then if we keep going on you, was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb? You have been my God, be it far, not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And we're just going to keep going. There's one verse uh, I want to find, which I think is really interesting. Here we go. In verse 18, they divide my garments among them and they, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And it's a really interesting point to bring out as well, that there's almost this prophetic nature to what Jesus is saying. Cause remember after Jesus's death, the Roman guards actually cast lots to mm-hmm. to win his clothes, to win the things that are on there. That they they gamble essentially to to take home parts of uh, of Jesus's belongings. And so, in the one sense, I do want to say that yeah, Jesus is exclaiming um, really just excruciating punishment for what he's for what he's going through right now. But he's also reminding the people around of this verse in the Psalms where all of a sudden people will begin to have their minds turned to it and they'll think like remembering verses and all of a sudden looking at the situation of Jesus saying. Like oh this this sounds familiar so it's a really it's a really interesting 
uh, passage of scripture. I would encourage you to read Psalm 22 as well, um, yeah. because it's, it's just, uh, I think it's fascinating, the parallels between uh, the crucifixion of Jesus and also uh, what's going on in that song. Yeah, and I even love the, um, I mean, it's it's a very difficult passage to read in some respects because it's hard to even comprehend what's really happening. And Jesus makes the statement, as we've already discussed at length, um, it, it's a revelatory moment where I think we get a glimpse into the punishment to come. Right. If we were, I mean, Christ, Christ was rejected. So we could, so we wouldn't be rejected. And it's a very deep, profound, almost like, and even as the question states, like it's a critical point in all of the Bible, because this is sin. Like this is the result of sin. Jesus took on and the, the guilt of all of our sins collectively is the human race. And I mean, scripture is very clear all throughout the, like light cannot exist with darkness. Like God, you know, God shows his, not, not his hatred, but his wrath for sin. He shows his, his disgust in what sin has done to his people. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it really is a tragic, but at the same time, um, reason to rejoice, like because of what Christ has done and it should, and I hope it does this, it should take our understanding of the cross and what Christ did um, to a deeper level, right. personally meaning. Um, and the other thing too is like the moment, um, going back to Psalm 22 for a minute, the moment that Jesus would make the statements, the entire Psalm would come to mind of those who knew what he was saying. He would use one line oftentimes to refer to the entirety of the Psalm. Uh, throughout scripture, we see that. Like if someone quotes a Psalm or a line from a Psalm, they're actually referring to the entirety of that Psalm. Um, so I just think with this convert, like with this conversation, it is a very critical point in scripture. It is a very critical point, but it should be also a very deeply moving and re- and powerful reminder for scripture uh, and for the the act of Christ's death on the cross. Because that He is, there is a moment where God, in essence, turns His back on Jesus because of sin, because Jesus became sin. Right. Um, so it is it is a very deep and. I mean, we could we could tread in these waters for a long time just trying to make sense of it, but it is it is still a deep, profound mystery, if you will. Yeah, and it's just yeah, just a reminder of how um, I think, particularly like I guess when we take communion, but any time that we reflect on the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus, to remember like the the sacrifice that Jesus went through is much deeper even than um, torture and crucifixion. There's there's a lot going on there that sometimes we we don't even think about. It's true, very very true. Uh, well, number three. Our next question, uh, Aaron, do you want to read this question? I don't know how to read. No, I'm just kidding. I... Um, it says this, question number three, Micah 5 contains a prophecy about Christ, but it is intermingled with the statement that Israel will be abandoned in verse three. It says later in passage, uh, in the passage in verse seven, it talks about the remnant of Israel, which made me realize you don't really hear anything nowadays about the 12 tribes of Israel still existing. What happened to them? Is this passage a prophecy of such a scattering? I'll let you go first, Evan. Yeah, so this is uh, this is a really interesting question, and a, a lot of um, when I was doing some research into it, there's a, there's some weird stuff out there <laughs> as far as like what? the tribes of Israel and all these different things. Uh, so the first thing I will say is that um, yes, during the exile, the tribes of Israel and Judah are they're scattered, <clears throat> and we gotta get that fixed, bro. We do. Uh, one day I'll go to the doctor, but. Um, 
I guess a, a little bit of time to remember the history of what's going on. So the northern ten tribes are what is living in Israel or Samaria, whatever you want to call them. And then the south, um, there's Judah. There's uh, I believe it's Simeon or Benjamin. I can't remember which tribe is in there, but there's a few tribes that are in there. Obviously, a lot of the Levites are also in Judah because they're they're scattered all about. Um, when the northern kingdom is conquered, the tribes are intermixed with the people, which in this is kind of a weird way to say it, but basically they're marrying people who are not um, members of the tribes of Israel. And you see that tension in the New Testament when Jesus is talking with, you know, the, he's telling the mm-hmm. parable of the good Samaritan, or talking to the Samaritan woman, all these different things. <coughs> uh, the Jews did not look kindly on the northern tribes because they had already kind of scattered and forgotten their, their tribal heritage. Um, add into that extra biblical history, we'll call it. Um, so after after the Bible is after the canon of scripture is closed, um, or I guess right before the temple is destroyed, and then um, really, if you just kind of look throughout history, um, the the Jews are, are scattered and they live in many different places. And I, I believe that it's not until very recently that the majority of the world's um, Jews actually lived, or at least the plurality actually lived in Israel. They were kind of scattered among the other nations. And so because of that, it's incredibly difficult um, to actually track down like, okay, well, I belong to this tribe or I belong to this tribe, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And that has more to do with basically just historical, um, the historical scatterings of a people where um, when you're living in exile in different areas of the world, perhaps you're not actually as concerned with making, with maintaining, I guess, in your own tribe and all those different things. So, so that's what I would say. Um, I didn't get to do a ton of research um, into, you know, everything that that means, but that's kind of, um, that's kind of where I landed. Yeah. I think that there's, um, there's some truth to that. I mean, whether we call it a prophecy or not, I just think it's as, as the timeline of history has continued on um, this idea of Israel being abandoned. I think you can totally see that play out um, because it's, I mean, there's so much intermingling. There's so much inner um, intermarriage. I mean, relationships and people groups today are so diverse. Um, I mean, you've got like the different, I just think of, and maybe this is way off base of the question, but I just think of the different, like 23 and me and the heritage and where's my lineage and where's my, you know, what kind of, you know, what mix of Caucasian am I? And, uh, and so I just think that there is this, there is this spreading of humanity and the difference. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those questions. I'm like, I never thought about that before. Yeah, so, no, it was a great question. question. It was fun to look into for sure. Um, so let's move on here to question number four. Um, this is kind of an interesting one, uh, which it comes up actually quite a lot. Selfish. He's <coughs> just selfish. Classic. So why did John always call himself the one who Jesus loved? It always struck me as a bit conceited. What evidence is there that suggests he was favored over Peter or his brother or neglecting to mention that Jesus loved all of his disciples and everyone else for that matter? Um Okay, so <laughs> there's there's a few different ways to read this. Um, I guess the most flattering the most flattering way to read it to John um, is that he is simply showing the reader that his identity is not in who he is, but rather it's in his relationship with Christ. And so that's when nice. that's nice to say, yeah. So when John is saying that he is the disciple who Jesus loved, he's really uh, directly calling to the fact that he's not saying his own name, basically. He's saying that his identity is wrapped up in his relationship with God, which I think is a beautiful thing. It's um, a nice way to say it. Yeah, there's, but there's could, also... Could he be a conceited little brat? Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> but the other side of it too, you gotta, you gotta, I, I think of it this way. John was the youngest disciple. 
And I think there is some level of affection and, 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 and love that Jesus would have for John. Um, because I, I mean, I look at the baby of the family, right? We, I mean, we do the stereotypical, my little brother, um, I swear is my mom and dad's favorite. Uh, above everyone else just because of that. But so I think there is something to be said that there is a special relationship there. There is a uniqueness to that relationship with John and Jesus. And it's not to say that uh, Jesus didn't love anybody else as equal, but it was just a different relationship. Just like I, I have two kids. I have a different relationship with my, my daughter than I do my son. And if I'm going to tell you I love my son more than my daughter, or my daughter more than my son, I miss speaking. But I do think and I do hope that both my kids think that, that I love them the most. And I love them fully. Um, and so I think G- John's statement is more than just, uh, I'm the one that Jesus loves and everyone else can just take it. But <laughs> I think it's understanding there's difference in relationships and difference in dynamics. Even even the transfiguration, when Jesus went up and was transfigured and stood with Abraham and, and Elijah, I think that's who it was. Uh, or maybe it was, but Peter, James, and John were there. Moses and Elijah. Moses, thank you. I was one of the older patriarchs. <laughs> um, but Peter, James, and John were there not the rest of the disciples. Right. He would pull disciples. These these three individuals were like his core individuals. So there was just a different relationship there. And I do, I would say, even being the youngest disciple, there is this big brother, father type relationship with Jesus and John, which creates this this affection and this deep love right. for them. Well, and there's clearly a difference in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Because there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a large group of disciples that we don't really talk about ever that goes not beyond the 12. Yeah. And they're actually uh, they're going to come up on Sunday's episode, so stay tuned because we're actually going to talk about that a little bit. Um, but I think a lot of times we think that there was twelve disciples and that was it, mm-hmm. and then more all of them came after the ministry of Jesus. Like, well, no, I think there was like it was seventy two is one of the numbers, but there's even a bigger number than that of people that were out. following Jesus, and they're they're clearly counted among his disciples. But he focuses his attention in on the twelve. Yeah, he calls the twelve himself. Yep. And then within that 12, there's a closer knit where I would say it's, you know, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Um, and then sometimes Andrew's even left out of that. So yeah, you can say Peter, James, and John are really his closest disciples. Um, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus was the closest with John out of all of his disciples. And, and the main reason I say that is because um, Jesus explicitly asked John to take care of his mother, which mm-hmm. is a um, – Yeah. Which we, we skip over Jesus a lot. Jesus on the cross – <clears throat> and he looks at John and says, John, here is your mother. Right. Referring to his mom. Like Mary is now your mother. And now it's this relational baton being handed off for now there's ownership and responsibility to care, uh, which is such a true thing. Yeah. And I think it's, A, what a beautiful picture of Jesus in the midst of incredible- was Peter at the cross? No. Peter was- uh, right. He famously was had, James at had the cross? denied- No, I think it was just John. So I, there, that there is like- And I only bring those up because that brings in a deeper understanding- this relationship was drastically different, right? Uh, and not not because like not to be better than it, but it just was drastically different. So yeah, and I think there's even like um, in in all of our lives, we can think of we have circles of friends, right? There's friends that I have that I'm closest with, um, and there's friends that I have where I'm not as close with. Um, and it's not that I love them less necessarily. I but guess I am you, the friend Evan loves the most. That's true. Um, but no, I mean, it's just this idea of there's relationships that you have are closer. And I, th- I think it's pretty clear in scripture that John and Jesus had an, an incredibly close relationship that mm-hmm. was closer even um, than the relationship of the other disciples. Yeah, I would so agree. Um, that's kind of answering question number four. It's a great question. Yeah, what really was. Okay, so last question. They're uh, not all great <laughs> questions, but today's are pretty good. They, there's a lot of conversation happening. Very true. 
All right, our last question, and this one's a meaty one, um, and we're not going to be able to get super duper deep into it, um, but we'll dive in a little bit. Um, John thirteen in John thirteen it says that Satan entered Judas. Uh, Charismatics I think are quite focused on the spiritual realm. Evangelicals tend to limit their teaching at any rate to the positive side. Um, can you spend some time explaining the notion of spiritual armies, angels and demons, and their impact on the human world? Okay, so. Buckle up. Big topic. Uh, okay, so the first thing I'll say is we should have uh, started with this question because we could have had more time for it. That's true. Well, we we still we can still make some time. I don't mind if the Q and A podcast. We're gonna go two hours long. No, I'm just kidding. This might be it. Might be a forty minute or though. But we'll see. <laughs> anyway, um, one thing I would recommend first off is there's a there's a great book um, called Systematic Theology. I actually brought it down here with me. I see it. Uh, I don't know why because this isn't a video podcast, but it's it's here and it's a because you feel good about referencing it. It's true. Will you fl- flip some of the pages flip to the mic the so pages, they can hear you? They can, yeah. There you go. It's, that that gives you an idea of how big of a book it is. It's a meaty bugger. It's like 1,200 uh, uh, words. Um, but anyways, the the, uh, the idea behind it. Words or pages? Pages. You said words. Did you I? said 1,200 words. 1,200 that's, pages. That's not a very big book. No. 1,200 um, pages. Is, sorry. So in, in systematic theology, really the idea behind it is, and there's a lot of books that do this, and, and there's a lot of great ones, um, is taking a topic and then looking at what does the Bible as a whole say about the topic. Mm-hmm. So it'll go through different ideas and different topics. And instead of saying, you know, what does, um, you know, Hosea say about the grace of God, which is a great way to study the Bible as well. So I think you need both and. Yeah. Um, it'll say, well, what does the Bible as a whole, what do all 66 books say about the grace of God? And so um, the reason I would recommend that is because it has a really great kind of coming together of all the different biblical sources for um, – just the spiritual realm. There's a chapter on Satan and demons. Mm-hmm. There's a chapter on angels. It's a great deal. Um, and I was reading through, I had to kind of skim because we didn't have a ton of time this week to do, to do necessarily all the research that I wanted to do. Um, but here's a few things I'll say, I guess. So with that recommendation aside, I would say, you know, read up. It's a great study tool as well. Um, just so if, if any topic really pops into your mind, it covers a lot of ground. Um, okay. So there is a spiritual realm that predates the existence of of humans is is kind of what we is kind of what we understand and so god is eternal god exists eternally and then at some point he created spiritual beings um we don't get a ton of info about what they are um in isaiah uh, i think in isaiah chapter six we read that a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago um, and it talks about how, you know, I believe it's the seraphim is what they're called. Um, and they're mm-hmm. going around. There's also cherubim, which are mentioned. Um, there's angels of the Lord. So there's, there's all these different things. And, and really what it comes down to is that they are um, messengers and servants of the will of God is what the angels are. And so when you see them in scripture, they are always doing the will of God. They're always encouraging the people who God will have them encourage. And so um, particularly in the Old Testament, they pop up a lot. In the New Testament, we see the angel Gabriel being used as a messenger to herald the birth of Christ. Um, We also see to the shepherds, it, it says a whole heavenly host appears in the sky and begin proclaiming the glory of God. And that really is a common theme that mm-hmm. we see with angels is that they are proclaiming the glory of God and who he is. And there's a bunch of other stuff that we don't really have time to get into, which maybe we'll do. If someone asks the question again, maybe we'll do a deeper dive. Well, And I, and I even think month. just even thinking out loud and processing, I think um, maybe we'll take some time in the next Q and a, uh, and really kind of redevelop. It gives us a little bit more time to, 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 to be able to have a little bit better 
uh, meat to the bone for this because it is a very deep question. I, and I honestly think we could take one entire Q&A podcast episode just discussing this topic because spiritual realm is a very real thing. Um, God created angels. Uh, he even created demons, but they were never be, to be t- demons. They were created all to be angels worshiping him. Uh, there was a fallout that happened with uh, Satan, also known as Lucifer, who wanted to be like God. And a third of the angels created by God decided to do what he wanted to do, which, which again, means that they're not robots. God values free will. God values uh, this concept of willingly worshiping him for who he is, not because he made you a robot to do that. Right. And so I, I guess I haven't opened his book. So I was letting him, I was, yeah, I'm, I'm turning to pages. So that's why you brought the book a, down. It is. Um, there's a few different things I suppose that we can talk about as far as Satan and demons uh, specifically. Yeah. So number one, um, and I said it earlier in the episode, which is kind of a teaser, but um, the Bible is not, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. It's not a lore book in the sense of it's giving you this world and then it has like chapters on like, and here's what this looks like and here's what this looks like. Now the, the Bible is very much concerned um, with God's relationship to, to man, mm-hmm. with God's relationship with humans. Um, and so the other things that are mentioned are always mentioned within the context of God's relationship with humans. And so and the it's, redemptive narrative. Right. So, and that's kind of, that's kind of the idea here. So we don't get <clears throat> a lot of, answers, I guess, on who Satan is, on what demons are. Here's what we know. Uh, We know that, again, in in a time before humans were created, God existed eternally. He created eternal beings, um, and some of them rebelled. Um, And we kind of get this picture of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, where it says, um, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you have cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mouth of the assembly in the far north. I will ascend above the heights of clouds. I will make myself most high. But you are brought down to Sheol in the depths of the pit. Yeah, and Sheol <laughs> is is this allusion to uh, hell and this this deeper than just, oh, it's a bad place. No, it's... Sheol is, it's talking, and when it says down to the pit, down to the depths, uh, it talks about this place that we would refer to as hell. And so we, we get this picture of, of Satan as really being um, someone who rebelled against God and, and wanted to be greater than God. And so the first recorded sin that we have in the Bible, um, not first in terms of like the first one we see, but the first one chronologically that takes place is, is pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was Martin Luther who said it, but I think it's a really great quote, is that pride is the sin that is pregnant with all of the other sins. Um, and at the end of the day, no matter what sin you're committing, in your heart, the sin is based in pride because what you're saying is that I know better than God and I, I don't want to do what God would have me do, but rather I want to do um, what I would want to do. And mm-hmm. so Satan is cast down. Uh, the demons are cast down with them. Um, these are all, again, spiritual beings that have rebelled against God. This also alludes back to real quick the idea of God does not coexist with sin. Like light and darkness cannot live together and coexist. And so Jesus or God and we're removing Satan and the, his followers. It was this, you can no longer reside here. Go back to the cross conversation for a minute, but like there is this picture that you see again throughout entirety of scripture, that tension too. Right. And so that's kind of, and to be honest, that's mostly what we know about uh, who Satan and demons are. Mm -hmm. There's not a ton um, there. And then we see that Satan and demons basically work against the will of God or against um, 
against what I would say is the the flourishing of God's people. Mm-hmm. So here's a couple things that I want us to keep in mind because I think um it it this is kind of just like a weird thing to say, but I think a lot of the times we have um fantasy in our minds when we're thinking of Satan and demons. And so like um like Lord of the Rings are like they're great. The orcs. They're great books. They're great movies. Yeah. And so we think of like there's you know the good and the evil, and they're constantly fighting, and we don't know who's going to come up on top, and then all of a sudden good triumphs over evil, which makes a great Boom. story. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Um, but that is not the story of God and Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, Satan. They're not on equal footing. No. Period. Satan is not, from not the even, not even close. Not even close. Uh, Satan is from the beginning only able to do what God allows him to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is true for all of us. Um, God does. And remember some of our revelation podcasts that we've <laughs> talked about as well. This, I mean, the book of revelation reveals a lot more of this, this war, uh, of, of good versus evil, if you want to call it that, but really the triumph of God over evil and Satan. Yeah. Like that, that's so you see some of that play out in the book of revelation. Too. And in the book of Job, yep. um, Satan comes and he asks God for permission to do what he does to Job. Mm-hmm. And so, and that can be a weird thing to get your mind around, but just remember that God does allow evil. God does not commit evil, um, but mm-hmm. we can do evil things to each other. And it happens not with the blessing of God, but it happens with the, uh, I, I would say, the allowance of God, if that's, mm-hmm. the, if that's the right way to put it. So that is how Satan and demons mm-hmm. operate. Um, the other thing I will say is this, is that as Christians, it's not something that we need to be afraid of. And again, I, th- I think um, there's some there's some people, there's some Christians where it's just like kind of this constantly walking in fear of the spiritual realm and all these mm-hmm. things. And, and that is a reality. There is clearly, um, there are spiritual forces at work in certain in certain times in our lives. You can feel it. You can feel it in seasons of maybe the church. You can feel it in seasons of your own personal life, all these different things. Um, but at the end of the day, we serve the living God. Yeah. We serve the God who created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. Um, and we don't need to fear anything, um, not even the spiritual realm. Yeah. And so um, I think there's an unhealthy way of looking at, at the, I, I will call it, I guess, the dark side of the spiritual realm as this thing that we just need to constantly be walking in fear of. It's like, no, we can trust in the Holy Spirit. We can trust in God um, that he will guide us, that he will protect us, that if we're rooted in him, um, it's not something where all of a sudden we need to be afraid of like all of a sudden, like I'm, yeah. I've been taken, you know, whatever the, the case may be. Yeah. And I think there's wisdom and discernment that we must walk in as well and a humility. Um, if we think, well, because I have Jesus, I can take over anything. So bring it on Satan. Like, no, no, like th- that's, that's being foolish, uh, with the power and the authority that we've been given. Uh, and so we do, we have to walk, we all have to walk humbly. We have to walk in, in a, uh, certain respect and reverence, um, to the fact that we are not, <laughs> we're not God. Right. Um, but at the same time, again, even whatever, we don't have to fear. Like we can walk in an assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, and greater is he that is in us, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, than he that is in this world, referring to the work of, of Satan and his armies. And um, and even to, just to reiterate for a moment, like the one thing that, that the demonic world, the demons and Satan are against is the work, the work and will of God. They are out, they are waging war. It is a constant battle, um, but we are on the side for those of us who've sur- surrendered our lives to Jesus and lived to, to honor and serve and please him. 
we are on the side of victory because of what Christ has accomplished through death and his resurrection. Right. And the final thought I want to share, um, I guess, for this episode, so it, it went a little bit long, but hopefully it was good. <clears throat> hopefully you guys have been enjoying yeah, it. And if there's more questions, again, we every, last Friday every month, we love answering these. These are some of our fun favorite podcasts. Uh, so we would encourage you to send in some more questions if you have them. Absolutely. And I'm sorry I've been so sick. Uh, but the final thought I want to talk about is if look at the Bible um, as a whole and look at all of the examples we have of of Satan tempting people. And what it always comes back to is this idea of pride. The very first mm-hmm. temptation that we see of Satan is Adam and Eve. And he says, you know, um, well, God doesn't want you to, to eat of that tree because then you'll become like him. And that's not what God wants. And Adam and Eve are, you know, seduced, I guess, by the pride of saying like, well, I can become like God. Um, even if you, I suppose, um, look at the story of Job, um, not that God sins or, or does anything wrong, but you know, what is Satan's main line of like, well, God, like you say that you're so loved and, and great, but Job wouldn't love you this much. Like again, Satan's appealing to, um, this idea of pride, which I don't think God can even be prideful because to, to be prideful means to think of yourself higher than you should, which I don't think God can think of himself any higher than he should, but that's, I mean, that's a whole nother philosophical can for another you day. You just open up another question. Yeah. Sorry. Ignore that. Anyway. The end um, of the next month, we'll be talking about it. And then when we see that uh, Satan is is tempting Jesus, what's he doing? Well, he's saying like, well, hey, like reveal your power, reveal who you are. Like, mm-hmm. don't just, you know, don't speak in riddles. Don't do this according to the plan that you have, but like, just show everyone what's going on. Um, Satan constantly attacks people through this appealing to their own pride. And I would say for us today, um, that is the greatest danger of i was i would say the dark side of the spiritual realm is mm-hmm. not so much that um all of a sudden we begin worshiping satan or demons or whatever it is but um that we are convinced to worship ourselves um and maybe we wouldn't say it like that but at the end of the day our actions say that we put ourselves in the place of god we worship self over what god has and i think um that is probably the greatest attack of the enemy and what we as humans are most susceptible well, that's the greatest to. disposition of our souls we are prideful people we um, yeah, I mean, again, not to belabor the point, but we, I, I remember reading uh, a statement that like we always talked about as, as Christians, like we're created to worship or created for worship, uh, because that's what we do. It's an innate, an innate piece of who we are. Uh, but the phrase that I really like was it said that we're created worshiping because that's an, it's an active reality of our lives. And it, what, what matters the most is who we place in the central focus of our worship. And I would simply argue and even state, I would suggest to you, I guess is a better way to say it, that if we're not worshiping Christ, we're probably worshiping ourselves and something that brings us comfort, which means, again, it's ourselves. And Jesus is the one who fought and died for that place so we could be who he created us to be. Right. But pride is a central figure. Pride is a central fight for all of us. And I think that is a, uh, a great place to leave off this episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, uh, it was fun. Again, this one went a little bit longer good chat. Uh, than we were planning on, but... Um, and again, just thank you for sending in questions. Uh, we love being able to answer them and do all those different things. Um, and then we would ask that, you know, if you have anything that pops up, um, any questions that you have, send them in to info at grove.church or you can direct Facebook message to the Grove Church Facebook page. Um, and we will see you all in a couple of days. 